Okay, let's just open um, with a word of prayer first. Father, we are grateful um, to be gathering together to study your word. Um, You have given it to us, um, revealing to us who you are, and thereby instructing us who we are and how we ought to live. I pray you will calm our hearts and open our ears this morning to um, receive what you have for us. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, and um, we will wait for your spirit to do his work. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to just dive right in. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Last week we learned that the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, is at the heart of the message of Deuteronomy. Um, It's the foundation of the covenant relationship, which was the standard set by the suzerain God as the basis for the continuing relationship with his vassal people. God gave the law to his people so that they would know how to live in relationship to him. There are rules in any relationship, right? We know this. If you have children or work with children, you know that. In uh, marriages, in work, work relationships, even between friends, there are rules that you follow that will help to promote and build the relationship between the two parties. God gave the rules to his people so that they would know how to live in relationship with him, but also so they would know how to live in relationship with each other. Many Christians are tempted today to view God's law as a bunch of rules um, that God has imposed on us to keep us from enjoying a full life. But God's law is not arbitrary. It's not random. It's not without reason. God um, commands what he does for good reasons. His law reflects um, his holy and righteous character, his nature, and it also reveals our own nature, our sinful nature. In Romans 3, verse 20, we read that through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is how we know um, that we have a sinful nature through the law. Last week, we looked at the first table of the law, which was the first four commandments that had to do with loving God. Jesus had said that the first and greatest commandment was to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. These next six commandments will lay the foundation on how to live in relationship with others. God had brought his people out of Egypt, and they were a community, and he intended for them to live in community, and so they were going to need to know how to do that, how not to just exist politely in a polite association with each other, but they would be unique as God's people because they would love each other. So let's dive back into the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to read from the beginning all the way to the end of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> so um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 5, and we're going to start in verse 6. Okay. God had said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, we're going to stop reading there. We're going to look at each of these last six commandments from three aspects. We're going to talk about what it meant um, for the original audience. We're going to talk about um, how Jesus transforms or deepens and broadens the commandment and the implications for us today. So let's look at the sixth commandment, which is in verse 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and your mother. This is actually a pivotal command because beginning with this command, we see a a transition from loving God to loving your neighbor, knowing that the second, loving your neighbor, is dependent on the first, loving God. Without a proper relationship to God, a proper relationship with with fellow man is impossible. Like an arrow coming straight down out of heaven, hitting the earth and spreading out in all directions, it's like the rubber is meeting the road, so to speak. We know how to love God, and now it's going to translate into loving our neighbor, and we're going to start with honor your father and your mother. So why is this important? Human relationships are intended to mirror our relationship with God. It's intended to mirror our relationship with God. Now, you notice I said intended, intended to mirror that relationship because we all know that relationships with human beings um, who are sinful and fallen often don't in any way mirror a relationship with God. And I'm not going to talk about honoring dishonorable behavior or obeying sinful commands. We're going to talk about just honoring father and mother. Enshrined in this fifth commandment is actually our entire duty to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what did this mean for Israel? So you have to remember, God led the people out of Egypt and put them in a community together. They had been living for 400 years, a little longer actually, in a pagan culture with numerous gods. Now God had called them out and to himself, and they must live together but not like the pagan nations around them. They must worship and love only one God, the one true God. And God commands them to love each other too. And that's going to start not only with honoring parents, but teaching children to obey authority and to respect and honor their elders so that they're going to grow up and know how to honor their parents. In the law, Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Interesting that God put honoring that aged um, alongside of fearing God. Um, There's a connection there, and he put it there on purpose. The emphasis of this command for them was on the continuity of the covenant community, which implies or presupposes the faithfulness of the covenant God. God had made a promise here that he would bless his people with both land and offspring, but the fulfillment would only be experienced if parents taught their children and as the children honored their parents. So let's think about how Jesus transformed this um, command. He showed the ultimate level of obedience, right, and respect and honor when he submitted to his father's plan and his will um, to go to the cross. So even unto death, our Lord Jesus was obedient to his father's will. We don't have a better example than that. And the Apostle Paul also wrote about how Jesus transformed the law in Ephesians 6, um, verses 1 through 3. Um, Paul wrote, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Obey your parents in the Lord. 
Well, there you have your spiritual family. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching a whole house full of people and someone came in and said, hey, you know, your mother and your brothers are out, outside. What did Jesus respond to them? He said in Matthew 12, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my brother, excuse me, and sister and mother. So the law still applies, right? It still promises blessing, but Jesus deepened the family bond, not disposing of the bond between parents and children, but opening it up to include all who put their uh, trust in Christ as Savior. It's really a beautiful picture. This law that we receive is transformed by Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. He intends for us to honor not only our parents, but all those who are in the family of God. We honor others above ourselves. In the love of Christ, we share with those who are in need and we practice hospitality. Those are all things that, that are in the New Testament. So the implications for us, we honor our parents, we care for them, we fulfill our obligations to them, and we teach our children. For if we as parents don't teach our children to obey, how are they going to know how to obey God? This is hard, isn't it? It's really hard to give up the honor um, that we imagine belongs to ourselves and give it to another. It really requires that we suspend our self-worship. To inconvenience ourselves for the benefit of others. To rise in the presence of the aged and thereby honor God. It's, It's hard, but it is a command. All right, we're going to move to the next one. Verse 17 says, you shall not murder. So we have to talk about this. The King James Version interpreted the Hebrew word for um, in in the original language as thou shalt not kill. So there's been much controversy um, over how we as Christians ought to live that out. In the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew language, there's actually eight different words that are used for different kinds of killing. This was new to me too. The word used here in this commandment in the Hebrew is ratzok, which means unauthorized or unlawful killing. It's better interpreted in more modern translations as murder. And we see in the ESV, you shall not murder. This means no taking of someone's life unjustly. So it does not include manslaughter, which is accidental killing. And remember last week we talked about um, how God had set up cities of refuge for the, for the manslayer actually to, to find refuge when he had accidentally taken a life. Um, it does not include war. There are laws about war that God had established. We'll study them later in, in the second semester in Deuteronomy 20 and 21. And it also does not include capital punishment. And there's laws that God laid down about that in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And the reason for this do not murder and the reason why like God gave laws for war or capital punishment is because of the value of human life. In Genesis 9, 6, we read, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for man is made in the image of God. So murder does include killing for personal reasons. So murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. The right to terminate life is God's alone. He is creator. He is sovereign. And when we decide to push against that, we are rebelling against God's lordship over his creation, over life. We are putting ourselves in the position that only God belongs in. So the moral duty here for that um, original audience and for us as well is to prolong life or promote life. How did Jesus deepen and broaden this commandment? He talked in Matthew 5.22 about anyone who even spoke angry words against his brother or sister. So physical injury is not the only way to break this commandment. Hatred, scorn, malice, 
There's really not a single one of us that is not guilty of this commandment. Implications for us, according to Edmund Clowney, the gospel approach to honoring human life avoids two extremes. It avoids setting human life above all value for truth and for God himself, and it avoids devaluing human life so that there's no longer a distinction between a human life and any other kind of life. So we need to repent when we realize that we have these extremes in our life. We either deify human life, we set people and um, ideas about life above even what God says, or even above God, and we also devalue human life. Both are against this commandment. All right, we're going to move on to the seventh commandment. The command here, you shall not commit adultery. This is specifically in regard to sexual relationships between two persons, one or both of whom is married to another person. It is unfaithfulness in, the, in a relationship of commitment. Marriage was a binding commitment of faithfulness between two persons. And, and in this uh, original audience of that community, that even started with a betrothal. It was considered binding even from that point on. Um, and so unfaithfulness between two persons. And in principle, it was similar to the covenant relationship itself. The crime of adultery was the social equivalent to the religious crime of having other gods. Both offenses involved unfaithfulness, and both were therefore reprehensible to the God of the covenant, whose character it is, is to be totally faithful. So the commandment against adultery was in place to protect the covenant community. There is a need for covenant faithfulness within the family in order to guard against being like the pagan nations around them who regularly practice sexual immorality. Punishment for unfaithfulness in marriage was death. We find that in Leviticus 20. It's serious. And how did Jesus deepen and broaden this commandment? If you remember in Matthew 5, Jesus taught that if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. So we have that seriousness of committing adultery that was punishable by death. And Jesus expands it to not just an outward act, but inward, beginning with the mind and the heart. And we have to apply that to us women too, looking at men with lust in our hearts, we're committing adultery already. So this implications for us is that this faithfulness needs to be characteristic of our lives and, not, and must permeate every aspect of our lives. We're talking about purity here. Um, so that would, would apply even to those that aren't married. Marriage is a reflection of the covenant between God and his people. Um, It's also a picture, a beautiful picture of the relationship between uh, Christ and his bride. We as believers, as Christ followers, are the bride of Christ. And he is our bridegroom. The Apostle Paul calls this a great mystery. And I would say it has to be a mystery, right? Because Christ is perfect. And if you're married, you know your spouse isn't perfect. And neither are we, right? It's a beautiful mystery. We are called to live lives of purity, sexual purity, beginning in our hearts and modeled in our lives. All right, the eighth commandment, which is in verse 19, and you shall not steal. Well, you know, essentially this is the prohibition of theft. Seems pretty simple and straightforward, doesn't it? But you have to remember the law is primarily concerned or specifically concerned with relationships between persons in, within the covenant community. So we have to look at all forms of stealing. So, of course, property, uh, things you can tangibly take, but also man-stealing, which is kidnapping, taking someone by force. And that would um, mostly is for the, the purpose of sale of a person for, for profit which would be slavery and human trafficking we've put in there. There's also stealing intangibles, like someone's dignity, a reputation, freedom, rights, ideas. Cheating. Cheating is stealing. 
exploiting the poor, robbing God. We have our tithes and offerings that we can rob God of, and we can also rob God of his glory. You know, God knows, excuse me, the depth of our sinful hearts. And his word teaches what is forbidden and what is required in the command, you shall not steal. There is a surprising amount of time given in the law that God gave about private property. God does show care about physical things. He set up rules about that. When the people of God took um, the land as their inheritance, there were boundaries put in place. Um, and, and there are specific boundaries about not moving even a stone that's on a property line. You know, we, you can't steal. You shall not steal. But let's think about how Jesus transformed this commandment. He transforms it by helping us to set our hearts on true treasure. Private property, the value of which is assumed in this commandment, because we're not going to steal, keeps its meaning only as long as this earth lasts. True treasure, as Jesus shows us, can be stored up only in heaven. Jesus himself brought the treasure of heaven to us by coming to earth to establish a lasting kingdom in which we have an inheritance. That inheritance is his very presence, for he himself is the treasure that we must value above all else. The implications for us are many. The Apostle Paul also expanded this in his teaching. This law is not just a prohibition of stealing, but if we look at the flip side, we see commands about work and about giving. In Ephesians 4.28, the Apostle Paul wrote, Let the thief no longer steal. No longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is a call for us to work and to share with those in need. We don't just work for ourselves, for uh, gaining wealth, prosperity. We give. We give charitably. We give sacrificially. And in this way, we reflect um, our Savior's example. The gifts that God has given us are not for ourselves alone. We have to remember that. All right, we're going to go on to the ninth commandment in verse 20. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. When I was growing up, I totally just interpreted this as um, no lying, no lying. But it's not really just that simple. This command has to do with lying under oath in a court of law. And we call that perjury. It's a serious offense, which carried a maximum penalty of death under the Mosaic Law. And even today, perjury is a serious offense. The word witness, you shall not bear false witness. The word witness actually means testimony, evidence, or proof. So a false witness is a false testimony or untrue evidence or fabricated proof. In the most extreme situation, A false witness in a court could lead to someone being put to death for something they did not do. And we actually know who that happened to. The law actually established that a single witness was not sufficient to establish a charge against someone. But there had to be two or three witnesses, and their um, testimony, their evidence, had to agree. If justice was to be upheld in a court of law, the truth had to be revealed. And to bring a false witness against someone by lying or other forms of deception is motivated, again, by self-interest. And self-interest is not the best way. It's not in the best interest of the covenant community. Jesus himself was the victim of false witnesses. He was completely innocent. And yet, when the Sanhedrin were trying to find charges um, in order to put him to death, they actually hired false witnesses to come in and testify about him. You know, in in John chapter 2, Jesus was saying, he was talking about his own body, and they were pointing to the temple, and he said, destroy that temple, destroy the temple, and I will build it up in three days, or raise it up in three days. Of course, they were like, what? You know, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus had said, destroy the temple, And then 
when the charges, when these false witnesses came in, they said, I heard him say, I will destroy this temple. That's not what Jesus said. And yet they used this, these false witnesses and other um, witnesses against him to condemn him to die. But not only did Jesus always tell the truth, he is the truth. In John chapter 14, we read that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth. Jesus further told us that the scriptures themselves testified about him. It was proof. It was evidence to to, um, reveal who he was, that he was truly the son of God. They told the truth about him. The whole Old Testament, the whole the law and the prophets pointed to him and gave evidence as to who he was. He chided the Pharisees actually for searching the scriptures and yet not believing what the scriptures said about him. Before Jesus returned to his father in heaven after the resurrection, he instructed his disciples that they would be witnesses of him. In Acts 1.8, we read, but you will receive power. This is what Jesus said to them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. They're going to testify about him, about who he was, what he did, and that people needed to believe on his name. So what are the implications for us? Of course, this ninth commandment is not just restricted to law courts, the courts of law. As the rest of scripture makes clear, telling the truth is a fundamental moral duty. And one of the ways that we love our neighbor is by speaking truth. Telling lies reflects the character of Satan, who is the father of lies. And since we are created in God's image, especially if we are his children, we are designed to reflect his character and so should speak the truth. But not only that, we are also called to be witnesses, witnesses to the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. How Jesus transforms this command is also a promise to us. Again, a quote by um, Edward Clowney, Edmund Clowney, a promise that he will defend us before the final court of law. His testimony on our behalf will allow us to enter the throne room of the king without being put to death. The freedom and life that Christ has purchased for us is to be used in joyful testimony and witness of him. To remain silent in a situation that gives us opportunity to bear witness to our Savior is to deny him before men. We are to witness to the truth of Christ. It is our high privilege. That is really a sobering thought to remain silent in a situation that gives an opportunity to bear witness of our Savior, to our Savior, is to deny him before men. All right, the 10th commandment, verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So this last commandment really stands out from among all the rest. In these words, you shall not covet, it really strikes at the very heart of the law that God is laying open before us. The other commands all have to do with actions, right? Um, But this one addresses our thoughts, our feelings, and desires, which are matters of the heart, This shows that the state of our hearts, those internal issues, really matter a great deal to God. Coveting is an opportunistic, deadly foe that grips the heart, turns the affections, occupies the mind, and can unravel a life. Clowney writes, this command does not just simply warn the Israelites against stealing the belongings of others, it goes much deeper requiring that God's people should not even desire what belongs to another. It focuses not on actions, but on attitudes. It speaks not just of what we do, but of what we want to do. Of all the neighbor-related commandments, it is the only one that can't be seen by your neighbor. Your neighbor never need know that you're coveting something that belongs to them, but God sees your heart. Only he will see that this commandment has been broken. Unless, of course, the coveting leads to an action and the breaking of one of the other commandments. 
Why is coveting so deadly? Because it can never be satiated. It can never be satisfied. It is a self-seeking sin, and it reveals the true desires of our hearts. It's the craving that just never gets satisfied. So how does Jesus transform this commandment? The Tenth Commandment is not a restriction on desire. It condemns desiring what belongs to someone else. Jesus didn't teach us to desire less. In fact, he actually taught us to desire and seek something more. Listen to Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What were all those things? Things that we need, food, clothing. Seek first the kingdom of God. And Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So in the Greek, it's actually um, better translated ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. That shows a desire. Desire. Um, We're desiring the things of God. Jesus taught that we should store up treasure in heaven because where our treasure is, that's where our heart's going to be also. It's not wrong to desire earthly blessings, but we need to be careful to desire the blessings of heaven above the best blessings of earth. And the treasure of heaven is Christ himself. Implications for us. It is significant that this command against coveting is the one to close out the Ten Commandments. Because this commandment is truly the one we cannot keep. It demands that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, with no respite, no respite, no excuse, and no caveats. This command brings us back to the first command, which is to have no other gods before the one true God. And we know how far we fall short in that. Because as soon as you covet something that belongs to someone else, you've put another God before him. It's that quick. So I know that this isn't a thorough um, explanation of these six commandments. Each one of them is worth um, a week's worth of homework and a whole teaching session in and of themselves. And maybe someday we'll study the Ten Commandments specifically. Um, But time restrains us here. So I do want to cover one more thing related to these commandments. I mentioned before how a lot of Christians today want to just do away with the law. Um, There's actually information on the internet you can find that Christians don't need to obey the law, the Ten Commandments. Some even prefer to focus just on the teachings of Jesus and think that he's more lenient than the God of the Old Testament. Well, first, the idea that Jesus is a replacement for the God of the Old Testament is a lie. That is a lie. Jesus is God. He is the same God who created in Genesis 1, and you'll find the facts for that in John 1. And Jesus himself in John 10, verse 30 said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. And there is no changing Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus didn't do away with the law. He insisted actually on the continuation of the Old Testament covenant. He said that the law would remain until heaven and earth pass away. So that hasn't happened yet. So the law still stands. But let's look at what Jesus did teach. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny himself. Deny herself. The New Living Translation says it this way. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You want to know how Jesus transforms these commandments? Self-denial. So let's look at what would be involved in each of these commandments. Honoring your father and your mother would be considering someone above yourself. Self-denial. Do not murder. Promoting and protecting life no matter the cost to you. Self-denial. Do not commit adultery. 
purity within relationships, no matter what the cultural context says. Self-denial. Do not steal. Giving. Giving cheerfully. Giving sacrificially. Self-denial. Do not bear false witness. Telling the truth, even when it costs you something or puts you in a poor poor light. Bearing witness for Christ. Self-denial. Do not covet anything that belongs to someone else, including worship, which belongs to God alone. Self-denial. This list is not exhaustive, but this is what Jesus teaches. If we are living as Jesus taught us to deny ourselves, then we will be living in obedience to the law of God. All right, let's move on with the rest of our text. That was long. (laughs) Let's move on. We're going to pick up in Deuteronomy 5, verse 22, so you can follow along. I'm going to read and comment as, as it comes up. Okay, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain. Oh, well, hold it right there. Isn't he talking to the second generation? But wasn't it the first generation that was at the mountain? Yeah, the first generation was at the mountain. But remember in the beginning of chapter 5, Moses brought it to them to say, God is making this covenant with us. It's We know that even though he's going to take them back to remember what happened at that mountain, we know that the commands were given to every generation, which is even to us today. All right, that the Lord, the words that the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. God audibly spoke the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, to the people of Israel. No more, just those ten. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Well, stone, that's going to last like forever, right? Stone is representative of permanence. It's permanent. Um, it wasn't written on parchment that might you know, get wet and be destroyed and go away, or fabric that might unravel. It was written. He wrote it. God wrote it on tablets of stone. On two tablets of stone, he gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire. Now, I want you to picture this, okay? The mountain is burning with fire. There's um, fire and cloud and darkness and a loud voice, which there was no form. They couldn't see anybody who was speaking. This was a terrifying situation. Uh, Just imagine If all of a sudden this room was shaking and there was darkness and cloud and fire and a voice coming out of nowhere, we would all be hiding under our seats. It would be terrifying. So while that was, while they were hearing and the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, Moses said, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. In verse 24, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Can you hear their fear, their utter Fear, raw fear. They are scared. God has spoken to man. Why are we still alive? And the picture here is that God is holy. Remember how he said God is a consuming fire. That was a picture of his holiness. Man cannot stand before a holy God and live. So they're saying, we've heard him speak. Why are we still living? We're afraid. We're just so afraid. And they should be afraid. Pick up in verse 27. Um, The people said to Moses, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. So right this moment, they're committing to obedience. But they're also asking for a mediator. They're also saying, Moses, you go. You go. We're too afraid. You know, we're all going to die. They don't want to die. You go. And you tell us what God said, and we'll do it. So right now, in this moment, they're committing 
to obedience. Pick up in verse 28. And Moses said, And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. They are right. It's right for them to ask for a mediator. It's right for them to understand and come to that full understanding that they are not able to stand before such a holy God. They were right. Verse 29, this is what God says. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. Do you hear God's heart for his people? His desire for his people? Oh, that they had such a heart as this. As what? They had just said, we'll, we'll do what he says. We'll do what he says. That right that moment, they had a heart to obey him. <clears throat> and he says, oh, that they would just have this heart always to fear me and to keep all my commandments because he wanted it to go well with them and with their descendants forever. But God told him, go tell the people to return to their tents. So they did. They went back to their tents. And you stand here by me. Moses actually went up on the mountain with God. We'll find that back in Exodus. And um, God actually told him the rest of the law, like the full extent of the law that we're going to get into uh, later, in, even in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and right in Exodus, there's more law. In Leviticus, there's more law. Um, the full extent of the law, God only spoke those 10 words to the people audibly. The rest he gave to Moses on the mountain. So um, God called Moses up, to, up. He's going to give him the rest of the law. And then he would, would in turn tell the people what it was. All right, so verse 32. And this is Moses speaking here. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. So, therefore, whenever we see that word, right, we've got a, what is that pointing to? You shall be careful, therefore, where they had been talking about how God is holy and we can't stand before him. So you go and find out what he's going to say and we'll obey. And Moses says, so, therefore, in light of the fact that God is holy and you are not, and these are his commands, he says, you shall be careful, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. Diligence, diligence and guarding their hearts and watching their behavior. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So they're going to walk. They're going to walk, not just walk. They're going to walk straight. They're not going to turn to the right, right, left, because that would turn away from, turn aside from the straight way um, that God had laid out before them. And Moses is telling them, again, you have to be careful. We see this repeatedly over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, to be careful, to be diligent, listen, do, obey. That is the way God has laid it out for us to follow. So what do we do with this? Why is it important for us as New Testament believers, as Christ followers, study and understand the Ten Commandments? Well, we have to remember that the law shows us who God is. It reveals his character and his holiness. His holiness. And the law is good. In Romans 7, verse 12, it says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But you know what? The law demands perfection. Perfection. It reveals to us our sin. Remember Romans 3.20, that through the law comes knowledge of sin. When we realize that we've sinned, then we have guilt. Guilt. And we realize that we are deserving of judgment, and we are standing before a holy God, and that would would elicit fear in our hearts as well. 
We tremble in fear before a holy and righteous God. I'm going to read some verses here in Malachi chapter 4. And I want you to listen to them in light of knowing that God is holy and he'd given his commandments and what he's, what he's um, talking about here with the fear before a holy and righteous God. Um, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. There's joy there. There's joy there. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And verse 5 actually says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So in, in uh, Matthew eleven fourteen, it tells us that, that Elijah the prophet that he would send is John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist do? He made straight the way of the Lord. Right? He proclaimed that Jesus was, was there. He was coming. So the law reveals how holy God is and how sinful we are. So where is our hope? Where's our hope? In our passage, we saw that when the people realized that they were standing before a holy God and they didn't know why they were still alive, they asked for a mediator. And God said that that was right. Moses acted as a mediator for them. But Moses' role was pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the better mediator. And we read that. I think you studied that in your homework in Hebrews chapter 12. For until we come to that place when we tremble before him, understanding that it is our sin that separates us from him and his holiness, and that we are deserving of judgment, we will never understand fully our need for a savior. We cannot approach a holy God without a mediator. Jesus is that mediator. I want to read um, some verses in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is the Apostle John that wrote these words. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And we know that Jesus walked in obedience to his Father. We are hopeless individuals, aren't we? But thanks be to God, he has provided a way for us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So just to to do a summary, I I wanted to kind of... In my mind, it's a circle, okay? There's the law at the top, and we're going to come full circle around to the law again. So the law of God is given, and it reflects God's holy character. Go a little further. The law demands perfection. But we're guilty because we can't keep it perfectly, and we're deserving of death. And then comes Jesus. Jesus, who does keep the law perfectly However, there was still a punishment that was deserving, our deserving of it. But Jesus bore that punishment, which was death, for guilty lawbreakers, even though he kept the law perfectly. He was innocent. But in Christ, we are transformed. And the law becomes for us not a judgment, but a delight. So the law isn't done away with. We actually come back around to the law, and we 
are then, through Christ and the power of his Spirit, as we're being transformed into the image of his Son, he gives us strength and encouragement and the ability to carry out his law. We won't do it perfectly. We won't. But as we become more like him, as we walk in his ways, um, in obedience to the law, in gratitude for being freed and set free from our own house of slavery, we will walk in newness of life, keeping his commands because we love him. Here's a a little paragraph from Edmund Clowney's book that I've referred to quite often. Christian, take heart. Christ has accomplished the law for you, and it is in the confidence and the freedom that Christ brings you that you can, by the power of his spirit, please God and live out in your own life what the will of God demands of you. You will not do this perfectly, but you need not to do it perfectly because God has looked on Christ and pardoned you. So reflect on all that Christ has done for you in perfectly keeping each of God's commands and go out today rejoicing, ready to do the work that God has prepared in advance for you, knowing that you have already been prepared for that work. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your law. And though we keep it so unfaithfully, we know that your son kept it faithfully. And we are grateful that that perfect life has been imputed to those of us who have trusted in him as Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would make us desire to meditate on your word, that we would be like a tree planted by streams of water as we meditate on your law day and night. May we be like that tree whose leaf doesn't wither and whatever we do prospers. Not not in a cultural context of prosper, but that we would grow and mature in you and be transformed more into the image of your son because that is what brings you glory. We ask all this in your name. Amen.